Hello, friends. On this show, we are always trying to find answers on the unknown. When it comes to the best soft pretzel on the market, that mystery has been solved. Milwaukee Pretzel Company offers the best Bavarian-style soft pretzel outside of Munich. We love Milwaukee Pretzel not only for the taste, but also because they're established right in our home city, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. While living in Germany, owners Katie and Matt Wessel fell in love with the German Bretzel. When they returned home, they set out to recreate their favorite bretzel and share them with their friends and family. Thus, Milwaukee Pretzel Company was born. To this day, each pretzel is made by hand using traditional Bavarian recipe with notes of rye, malt, and real butter. Utilizing a time-honored baking process, high-quality ingredients, and no added sugar or preservatives, it's a tradition you can taste. Visit their online store at milwaukeepretzel.com for a variety of pretzel sizes, gift boxes, and of course, my personal favorite, the famous one-pound Bavarian Beast soft pretzel. Milwaukee Pretzel will ship nationwide, even to Hawaii. MKE Pretzel has extended a special coupon code for all locations unknown listeners. Just use the code UNKNOWN20 at checkout to receive 20% off of your order. Specific terms may apply. Again, that's UNKNOWN20 at checkout. Prost! Thousands of people have mysteriously vanished in America's wilderness. Join us as we dive into the deep end of the unexplainable and try to piece together what happened. You are listening to Locations Unknown. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Locations Unknown. I'm your co-host, Joe Irado, and with me, as always, is a guy who always holds the door open for others, Mike Van de Bogart. Uh, thank you, Joe, and thank you once again uh, to everybody that is tuning in. Uh, just got a couple uh, announcements for you guys, and then we'll get right into it. First and foremost, obviously, we'd like to give our new patron shout-out. We've got four new ones this month, and I always say this, I'm sorry when I get your name wrong. It usually happens at least once. So uh, we've got Sam uh, Perjaco, uh, Sherry Lynn Henderson, Jacob uh, Zanatel, and Michael Huey. So uh, thank you to all of you. Like we say this every episode, but, you know, it means a lot to us that you guys are, you know, supporting the show. And uh, we will be recording our Patreon episode after this one. And we're going to kind of give a... uh, a state of the podcast episode kind of you know fill you guys in on what we're working on and where the podcast is going so uh it should be a good one and uh, i also wanted to mention that we do have a discord channel and joe and i have been pretty quiet on there we're gonna really make an effort to try to interact with uh, everyone on our patreon discord channel so uh check that out um final update for me joe we've got some exciting partnerships to announce so um locations unknown is partnering with four uh, four brands right now. So Camelback, Olympus, Radisson Hotels, and Rentalcars.com. And all the things you need to go on a trip. Uh, exactly. Uh, Camelback. I've <laughs> I've used Camelback on probably every hiking trip I've been on. 
Um, Olympus makes some of the best um, optical equipment and gear on the planet. Um, you know, in Radisson Hotels and RentalCars.com, you, a lot of times you will need a hotel and a rental car when you go hiking. So Yeah, those ones are self-explanatory. Yeah, so these partnerships are, are really cool. They We'll get them on our website here in a you know a week or so. But basically, it'll all of our listeners will be able to get discounts on products and services they sell. And we also earn a little bit of a commission when people buy things through uh, those brands. So, you know, you're getting a great product or service at a discount and you're helping uh, locations unknown out. So uh, stay tuned for more details on that. Uh, and That's Joe. A win-win. Yeah, That's a win-win. Exactly. So, um, and Joe, I think you had an update too. Yeah, I wanted to do an update. Um, what we try and do is anytime we have an episode on a missing persons and their updates in the news or media about that person, we try and at least give an update on the show. Um, so several of our listeners have brought it to our attention that, unfortunately, uh, episode 32 on Erica Lloyd, her remains were found. So it's very sad news uh, for her family. Um, but the a little bit of details about the case. So the search came to an end on January 31st when hikers discovered human remains on a desert trail in Wonder Valley. That's about 15 miles northeast of Joshua Tree, where she was first uh, noted as gone missing. The San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department said on Thursday, the coroner's office used dental records to determine who the remains had belonged to, but the cause and the manner of death have not been ruled. So they did verify that it was Erica Lloyd's uh, remains that they had found. They have not yet released or determined the cause and manner of death yet. Uh, her campsite and gear was found still intact at Jumbo Rocks Campground in Joshua Tree, which is about 10 miles from where her car was found. Uh, if you don't know the details, you have to go back to episode 32. We, we go into it in specifics there. Uh, this is just a high level overview of the current updates. And it remains unclear whether Lloyd met with foul play or simply lost her bearings after setting off on a hike in Wonder Valley. Um, So there's still speculation about that, but they don't have a concrete reason as to why she was there. The investigation is still ongoing. And as we get more details or information about this story, we will update you in later episodes. All right, everybody, let's gear up and get out to explore locations unknown. July 19, 1991, a 13-year-old Boy Scout was on his first overnight backpacking trip at the San Bernardino National Forest in Southern California. On a hike to the summit of Mount San Gorgonio, this Boy Scout fell behind from the group. A troop leader asked him to wait on the trail while the rest of the group progressed. They planned to get him on the way back down, however, he was never seen again. The search uncovered his camera and personal effects with one last eerie photo taken. Join us this week as we investigate the disappearance of Jared Negrete.
San Gorgonio Mountain, also known locally as Mount San Gorgonio, or Old Grayback, is the highest peak in Southern California at 11,503 feet. The climate on most of the mountain is warm, summer Mediterranean. The summit of San Gorgonio has an alpine climate, so the temperatures are usually greater than uh, 10 degrees Celsius or 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, like most of the other peaks in the uh, transver uh, transverse ranges, the summit is technically an easy class one hike. Uh, several trails lead to the broad summit, um, which rises a few hundred feet above the tree line. Most routes are very strenuous and require well over 4,000 feet of elevation gain. So, Joe, yeah, it sounds like th this is one of those peaks that you've talked about where um, it's not a technical climb. It's yes, it's 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 a path all the way there, but it doesn't necessarily make it easy. And that's what's so confusing sometimes when they say it's a technically easy class one. Yeah. Doesn't mean it's an easy hike. It means you don't need climbing equipment. You don't need all that stuff. You can walk to the summit. Yeah. And this one is interesting that, you know, the tree line on this one uh, goes almost all the way up to the uh, the summit. And we've discussed this in previous episodes. Uh, the tree lines are usually uh, determined by the level of moisture in the climate. So with this, you know, summit, you know, in kind of a warm summer Mediterranean type of climate, you're going to have, you know, trees higher up the mountain. So it, you know, there's more cover on this mountain. Yes. Um, but yeah, sounds like a, you know, kind of a, a cool place to hike if you lived around there. So a uh, quick little location profile in this episode. So Joe, I'm going to jump right into the character profile and you know, some of these cases with this one being, you know, 1991, some of the details about uh, the individual are a little scarce. Uh, we find we typically find this the farther we go back, the the less detailed information we find about the character. But we do have his basic um, appearance. So uh, at the time of his appearance, he was in eighth grade. He lived in El Monte. And he was five foot two inches tall and 150 pounds. And he was wearing green pants and a tan shirt and was carrying a two quart can canteen of water. Uh, he was a Hispanic American with black hair, brown eyes, and he had a small birthmark on his right cheek and wore glasses with a brown plastic rim. So pretty good description of, you know, what what clothing he was, you know, in. We don't know. Um you know, obviously he wasn't in like, you know, mountaineering gear or anything like that. He was just a little kid on a Boy Scout trip. So, um, well, and that, that I think it plays a credence into the difficulty yet ease of this type of hike yeah. is that it's the Boy Scouts are going up. It's kind of a heavily traveled path. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's absolutely been some hikes I've been on that you've been on that I would never take someone under the age of probably 12 uh, yeah. on the hike, just because of the technical nature of it. Even if you're not climbing, it's, you know, some of these trails you get on are very narrow and you might have a five to a thousand foot, uh, you know, cliff on one side. And as an adult, it's hard to kind of keep your focus on your feet. But if you're a little kid, I, one all step stumble and wander and all that other yep. stuff. Yeah, yeah. So this, this hike sounds, you know, pretty easy, something you could bring the whole family on. Yes, 100%. All right. Um, so, I'll yeah, I'll go into the timeline now. Like I said, they're, they're 
we don't really need to do too much of a description. He was with a Bowie Scout group. We kind of understood what he was wearing. Yeah. So we're going to jump into the timeline. It was Friday 19th, July 1991 at about 6 p.m. So Jared was falling behind his fellow scout group on a hike to the summit of the 11,000-foot Mount San Gorgonio. Another group of hikers that was going up the summit trail spotted that Jared was struggling, uh, straggling behind and notified the scout leader at the mountain summit. Scout leader was an experienced hiker and said he was going to pick Jared up on the way down. When the leader finally decided to descend the mountain, Jared was nowhere to be seen. So there's a couple different reports of how this went down. Mm-hmm. The most common one is that he was st- struggling to keep up and he was told to just sit and wait on the trail because okay. it was too difficult and that they would then pick him back up on the way down to their camp. Okay. Um, there's, what it seems like is that he kind of wasn't just sitting in one spot. And I think mm-hmm. that's what inevitably led to this issue. So we'll get into, the, into that a little bit. So they left, the group left this child by himself on the trail? Yes. Mm, okay. Yeah, that uh, that just seems, I don't know. if <laughs> it, se- it seems weird, but here here's where I'm going to play devil's advocate. Because okay. I think it's very easy to immediately chastise the scout leader. Um, yeah. And I'm not saying he's right either. I'm just saying... This, from what it seems like, and all I've looked up, so all trails I looked up uh, has it listed that um, there's a couple trails that go to the summit. They're all around 19 miles each. Yeah. Uh, they're well marked. There's a couple that say there's different turnoffs you can take that aren't marked, but they're well, like visible, well marked. And although it's a long distance, a lot of people do it. So it's kind of like a normal trail in a heavily trafficked, I say like the touristy areas of a national park where there's just tons of people everywhere. Yeah. So I'm trying to think to myself in my head, if I have a group of kids, I'm trying to get to the summit. There's one that's just not going to make it. I can either force them to get to the summit and have issues or say, yeah. hey, you know, wait right here, you know, sit down, eat some food. We're going to come right back. We're, mm-hmm. we're just right up here. We're going to come right back. I could see that happening and not being something that's terribly incorrect to do, I guess is the way, way to say it. I don't know. That's just me playing devil's advocate. And I mean, you you obviously with six kids no no better than I would but and you know he is 13 years well, old I don't so. know about that <laughs> but yeah that's that's what I thought too he's he's 13 years old you know he's yeah. a teenager I have a daughter that is 13 years old yeah. that I would trust you know on a trail to be honest a well-marked trail to say she's if she's like I'm gonna go on a quick hike uh, up and down to camp mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think I'd say no if like I, I was in Colorado or, or something yeah. like that I guess you know my concern always is I I'm almost more worried about some of the other humans out on the trail versus, you know, a 13-year-old falling or, you know, an animal attack. I just, that would be my biggest concern in leaving a child alone on a, a, you know, pretty highly trafficked trail is who knows who's going to come across, you know, that child. So that would be my concern, but... I will agree with you on that. I'd say the one, my one caveat to me playing the devil's advocate is I yeah. don't like that he was by himself. If anything, you you want to have someone else with them, uh, even if it's just another kid, the, uh, another peer that's behind. Yeah. So that's just not somebody by themselves. Because that's usually on this show, the history of the show. When do we get in trouble? It's usually when it's just a single person doing something. Yeah, and you know, I mean, quite honestly, I I think if I was gonna you know take a Cub Scout group up into the mountains, I probably would want at least one other adult with me. Just, you know, what if somebody gets injured and someone needs to, you know, they can't move um, and someone would need to go down to, you know, the ranger station and 
you know, you're not you're not going to want to leave an injured child up on a mountain summit by themselves. So yes. I mean, I think having two adults, if you were doing that, would be well, the, and look at the, the best thing frame. to do. And, yeah, <laughs> and I we can say this now because this was the '90s. Yeah, and we used to be able to do whatever we wanted in the '90s. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, seriously, like I yeah. was only like, how old were we? Jeez, I don't even know. Ninety-one, like yeah, seven, six. seven years old. Yeah. Um, I was riding my bike for miles all over Milwaukee. Like, and I, we had no phones. We didn't check in. It was make sure you get home at night. I mean, that was standard <laughs> fare. All my friends did it. I mean, that was normal. Nowadays, my parents would have got thrown in jail for, for negligence, like negligence. But back then, ev- that's how everybody operated. You rode your bikes everywhere. Um, so I, I think of it, that mindset at that time too, is we're on this one trail. It's a single trail that goes up and down to camp. Yeah. yeah. Wait right here. We're going to be right back. Yeah. Not a huge deal. So uh, we'll, we'll move on from this. That, that I just want to set the context there of kind of the time frame, what was happening. So as soon as the troop leader realized that Jared had disappeared, he accompanied his five other scouts back to base camp and hiked about five miles in the dark to go get help. The San Bernardino County Sheriff's deputies, along with search and rescue teams from as far away as Sierra Madre and Sam San Dimas, began searching a 130-square-mile area of San Gorgonio Wilderness a rocky tree-lined terrain. Within three days, their search was focused on a six-square-mile area where a footprint believed to match one of Jared's high-top tennis shoes was found. Searchers also discovered beef jerky and candy wrappers believed to have been dropped by the scout, and most importantly, his camera was located. Law enforcement had the images developed immediately, and there were a total of 12 images on the camera. So most of the camera photos were landscapes and scenes that he had Mm -hmm. taken before he went missing, But the final photo is one that's kind of creepy. It was basically a selfie with a normal camera with a flash taken where it's just kind of his head. It's it's a zoom in on his nose and eyes. And it looks as though in the background it's nighttime. So like the flash appeared and his face is really bright. Yeah. Um, So they assume it was taken after he went missing at nighttime. Okay. So his family members said it appeared Jared had pointed the camera at his face and snapped the picture basically. At least 70 officers, some of whom were airlifted by helicopter into the forest and horseback riders, as well as helicopters with infrared, were deployed. In addition to that, infrared monitors were installed at a number of high points on the Saturday night in hopes of spotting the boy in the dark. But they only found deer and other animals in the monitors and the the images that were produced. So that was the first time I've ever actually heard of that being used, Mm -hmm. um, which is a pretty cool idea, actually, if you think about it, just... Give me heat signatures at night yeah. from different areas. Yeah, I've never heard of that on a, a hike or a search and rescue operation before. So interesting. Yeah, it's 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 pretty good. I I can't imagine. I almost wonder if it was used in other ones and wasn't noted for some reason because that seems like such an obvious idea. I yeah. guess uh, for it to not be used regularly. So. Yeah, and uh, it maybe it very well might have been used on other searches. We just don't know about it. But um, and maybe, maybe this search and rescue team um, didn't have some of the equipment, the aerial equipment to do infrared searching at the time. So. Well, they said no. They said the helicopters did have infrared on them. Oh, okay. So they they weren't using FLIR obviously because that was newer. But they were using the infrared cameras from the chopper. Interesting. So. And I didn't even mention in the beginning, and it's a pretty big deal. We have Rick Maschek, who was actually a search and rescue worker on the ground. He was a former 
park ranger was in search and rescue for a while and now he teaches like rocket science to kids he, he was explaining <laughs> it a little bit to me and it's it sounds impressive and he, he's very dedicated to education so he was uh i found him on a forum commenting on this case and i messaged him and he he was willing to come on and speak about it so we're going to have the first-hand account coming up too but i wanted to get through the rest of the story and then we'll actually go to that interview with rick okay so after they did that, basically over the next two weeks from when he went missing, as many as 3,000 people had logged over 45,000 hours scouring 50 square miles of the San Bernardino National Forest from Angeles Oaks to Whitewater Canyon. In addition to searchers on foot and on horseback, uh, no further clues were found. So basically, Jared had vanished. They theorized that the camera could have been dropped while Jared slid down a mountain slope. So there was one thing, and I won't get into it too detailed because Rick made mention of this, that um, he was seen by another hiker cutting switchbacks on the way down the trail and was told, huh. and basically the hiker told him not to do it and to stay on the trail. Yeah. Uh, so. It's it, tempting it, whenever it's, you're hiking. Exactly. I think that's the biggest thing. It, it's very tempting to do because it's just so much work to walk in a zigzag up a but, hill. Yeah, it's it's incredibly dangerous. And um, not only is it dangerous, Joe and I stress to leave no trace. That means staying on trail unless you actually have a backcountry permit that allows you to, you know, some parks in the U.S. will issue backcountry permits that basically allow you to camp anywhere within the borders of the national park. Yeah. And in those instances, it's fine to go stomping around, you know, off trail but you know a lot of parks they want you to stay on the trail you if hundreds of people every day do stuff like this you know cutting switchbacks it it destroys the you know the park yeah. um but being that yeah, he was it causes a, erosion all that stuff yeah but you know being that he was a 13 year old kid um he probably didn't know any better and you sure. know i mean logically it makes sense you could you know shorten your trip down the mountain <laughs> By a lot. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's it's after. I mean, after even doing Africa, just wanting to go in a straight line back to camp after all the work going up Kilimanjaro. Yeah, it was just it was. It's really tempting, but it's super dangerous to do that. Yeah, especially if you got a heavy pack on your back. Oh, 100 percent. Hey, friends. Today's show is sponsored by the Made for TV Movie Club podcast, a comedy podcast that reviews TV movies from the 70s, 80s and 90s. Each episode takes listeners down memory lane with reviews of classic TV movies through the lens of humor and an eye for the fashions of the time. Never seen the movie? Don't worry. The hosts cover each movie from beginning to end. Join the club today by subscribing and listening to the show on your favorite podcast app. The Made for TV Movie Club podcast is available on all major podcast networks, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Radio Republic, Pocket Cats, Breaker, and many more. You can also find links to their website, Facebook page, Instagram page, and Twitter account in the summary of this episode. This episode is also brought to you by Thief Bikepacking. Thief Bikepacking is a Canadian company that specializes in making bags for bikepacking, touring, commuting, and plain old riding. Bikepacking is a more off-road version of traditional cycle touring with different types of bags for carrying all the gear you would normally carry backpacking. Thief Bikepacking specializes in making dozens of bikepacking and touring bags in addition to accessories like handlebar and stem-mounted bags, 
top tube bags, tool rolls, bike-specific bear spray holders, and smaller packs for snacks, tools, phones, wallets, and much more. If you have an unusual-sized bike, Thief Bike Packing can also use those measurements to make custom-fit bags that will fit perfectly to any bike. Their products come in a ton of different colors and are all handmade and sewn with the finest materials in Jasper, Canada. For a limited time, listeners of Locations Unknown can get 10% off their purchase by using the code LOCATIONS at checkout. To learn more about Thief Bikepacking and to take advantage of their offer, visit www.thiefbikepacking.com. You can also visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash bikepackingthief and on their Instagram page at instagram.com slash thiefbikepacking. You can also find all of these links in the summary of this episode. All right, so what we'll do is we're, we're going to go to the interview with Rick, and you'll hear kind of his firsthand account as well as his theory and opinion as to what could have happened. And then, Mike, you and I will, uh, will, will conclude after that and just kind of discuss what our thoughts are. Cool. Hello, everybody. We have Rick Maschek here with us, and he was part of the search and rescue operation on Jul- in July 19th after 13-year-old Jared went missing in Southern California. Now, Rick, can you give us a little bit of a background on what your role was during the search for Jared? Yeah, I was with the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Desert Rescue Squad. Our team was uh, located out of Barstow, California. And we are primarily a, a desert team. And as the search expanded, they started calling in more and more teams to help with the search. The search had been going on for a few days. And all of search and rescue in California is done by volunteers. And they get called off of uh, their jobs, employment, and they search for a while. And depending on the terrain, they start to get burned out. They get tired and exhausted. And if the search continues, they start calling in other teams, uh, generally from the county. And if the search continues uh, for a long time, they start uh, doing mutual aid, calling in teams from other counties. Uh, We were called in a few days after the search had started. And we were helicoptered in to search for uh, a certain area, location. And during that time, they would fly teams in in the morning and then start flying teams back out in the afternoon. And we were going to be one of the last teams to be flown out that first day that, that I was on the search. And apparently... A team found some bear scat, and the helicopter was diverted to pick it up to look to see if uh, if it had human remains in it. And so, unfortunately, the uh, it was getting dark, and they said we'd have to stay out for the night. Um, so we we did that. We made the uh, the night out uh, as, as best as we could. We were expecting to be flown out, you know, in the afternoon, evening. So most of the people that uh, I had gone in with uh, didn't have much as far as uh, sleeping bags or anything. Um, I refused to go in without at least a 24-hour pack. So I, I was the only person that uh, had uh, nighttime 
stuff to keep me warm. And the others built a little fire to keep themselves warm. In the morning, they were flown out. And since I was a school teacher and I had a pack with me, um, and this was summertime, I was off. So I asked if I could be uh, attached to some other teams. And so for the next week or so, um, I would join other search teams in the field. And so I got to search a few different areas uh, on the mountain at the time. So could you give us a little detail about the type of terrain that you were searching and um, if, if you could, or if you remember even where they had you searching and, and what was like the impetus for searching certain areas, just because some of our listeners are unaware of how search and rescue operations run. And we would like to hear it from, from you, someone who's been involved in these uh, quite a bit. Okay, San Gregorio is a 11,000 foot uh, mountain. It's the tallest peak in Southern California. Um, made up mostly of uh, a lot of loose rock uh, and vegetation, uh, chaparral type vegetation, manzanita, other things. And it does have uh, you know, some tall pine trees uh, lower on the mountain. Uh, except for trails that enter the mountain, it's pretty, pretty rugged because uh, you're dealing with a lot of loose broken rock. We have a lot of earthquakes in Southern California and so the mountains tend to be broken up. Uh, also uh, covered with uh, vegetation when we don't have fires burn it off. So generally going off trails in our mountains in Southern California is a pretty grueling ordeal. Uh, when I was a lot younger, I used to climb peaks that didn't have trails on them. And sometimes I would find myself literally climbing on top of thick, heavy brush or occasionally crawling under the brush uh, because that was easier to, uh, to navigate. Uh, and I could see, having experienced that when I was younger, I could see how he could have got himself into a situation where he was in heavy brush trying to get down off the mountain. Okay, I know when um, they talked about some of the eyewitness accounts, there was a, a statement that Jared was seen by another hiker cutting switchbacks on the way down the trail. Can you explain why that could have potentially been a very uh, bad thing for him to be doing? Okay, on, on a lot of mountain trails, uh, especially if they're steep, they use a lot of switchbacks, which is kind of zigzagging back up the mountain. And I used to be on some trail maintenance projects, and it takes a bit of work making trails that are easy to, uh, tra to traverse. And so we really don't like when people cut the switchbacks, because what they do is they start eroding the trail. And from what I heard, the last person that saw him was an off-duty firefighter coming down the mountain and saw him cutting the switchbacks and told him that he shouldn't be doing that. And he continued on. And that was the last time somebody had heard or seen Jared. Uh, unfortunately, I think what probably happened was Jared continued cutting switchbacks because it's a little shorter doing that. And he cut the last switchback and there wasn't any more switchbacks and he kept going down the mountain um, off the trail. 
Okay, so you don't think it, it wouldn't have been like a fall per se, but if he's off trail and he's kind of going through brush, he could have continued going through brush and never rejoined with the actual footpath? Well, that's what my own feelings are. Because okay. they searched the, the area um, around that location and several hundred feet below the trail, um, they found some, I think it was candy wrappers or something like that, that they uh, found were, was his. And they continued searching down that, if you want to call it a canyon or, or ravine, uh, a certain distance and then it started getting dark and they called in more teams to, uh, to search that area. And that's where I was added to a team of Marines from 29 Palms to search and rescue. And our job was to go down that uh, canyon to a place where there was some waterfalls and uh, search uh, using ropes, search the uh, road, uh, waterfall area, the rocky area, to see if he may have uh, slipped and fallen below that. Okay, and you guys didn't you guys didn't find any signs or anything because I know you mentioned that they found the candy wrappers and then later they found a camera where they developed some photos and in the last photo they assumed was after he had gone missing it was a, a self photo where he just pointed it and it was a picture of his face and it seemed like it was dark in the background. Um, did you guys come across any of that type of stuff or were you just put in the areas to search where those things were found so they, they narrowed that search area down? Yeah, the wrappers and camera had already been found. Okay. We were uh, sent down further down below that to search, in particular, uh, these cliffs with the waterfalls. The, uh, the Marine team that I was on was a new team kind of put together. And as we were starting to set up our ropes, uh, I heard thunder and lightning up above. And I told everybody we had to get out of the uh, ravine. And shortly after that came a big torrent of uh, boulders and muddy water raging down, a uh, flash flood. Oh, geez. And about uh, five minutes later, it, it kind of diminished back to uh, nothing. And we continued setting up our ropes. And then we heard a call on the radio that a blue canteen was found about five miles below us. And apparently Jared had a blue canteen with him. And so the Marines hearing that, okay, they, they found his canteen below us, so he's down below. And so they start gathering their ropes back up. And I asked the uh, Lieutenant that was in charge of them that we continue our job of searching the cliffs because until we got called off. And at that time, the, the Marine guys, they were already headed down the uh, canyon. And he said, well, it's going to be hard to get them back up here. <laughs> and so we went, started going down the mountain. And about an hour later, they called and said that wasn't his blue canteen. Oh, so it might have washed out with all, with all the, the deluge of water coming down and it was somebody else's? Well, it was, apparently it was, it had been on the mountain for a while. Oh, okay. It wasn't his. So uh, we were already down the mountain quite a ways and the lieutenant didn't want to go back up there. So the search and rescue uh, had to send another team into that area to cover that. 
and I was then transferred to another team as, I, like I said, I was a school teacher. And so for about a week, I was uh, attached to different teams, searching different areas on the mountain. So in, in a search and rescue effort, um, when they're coordinating it, do they basically pick different areas and then coordinate teams to search like a grid pattern? Or how do you do that on steep cliffs where you're actually repelling to get to certain areas? Okay, since he had been on the trail, and we were assuming that he decided to go back down on his own instead of waiting for the rest of the uh, scout troop to come down. And so essentially they divided up the, the mountain below the trail into search areas, sending search teams into different places below the trail to search. That was the, uh, the one of the places that uh, I first searched with my team uh, when we were sent in. It was a few days later when I talked to one of the search uh, managers that they need to start putting teams in there uh, with uh, at least overnight packs instead of flying people in the morning and then flying them back out in the afternoon. Uh, that was given teams anywhere from three to six hours of search time. And I told them, you know, we should go go in there and, and be in there for at least, uh, you know, overnight in a, in a day or two of uh, searching to search more area. Uh, really rugged area. Um, I keep thinking even today, you what might have happened to him. Uh, it's possible it could have been a rock slide. Uh, it's possible he was in heavy brush and was crawling underneath the brush and just got exhausted, uh, tired out. Uh, a lot of different uh, possible scenarios that could have happened uh, to him. Uh, there was talk about a marijuana grove up there that he might have wandered into that. Uh, you start getting a lot of, you know, strange explanations of, of what could have happened. Sure, and, and I'm sure it's very disheartening when you're finding clues and things to, to kind of point you and say, hey, we're in the right area, but you're still turning up nothing on the individual you're looking for. Yes, and you know we're all volunteers, you know, so we're called off from from our jobs. Uh, at the time, I was a school teacher, so I was fortunate in that you know I could spend a week or so. I think it might have been ten days mm -hmm. um, on the search. Uh, but most search and rescue people, you know, their their employers let them off for a few days. Uh, weekends are usually no problem. But uh, like I said, it's it's a volunteer project. And the sheriff department has a responsibility of the safety of the searchers. And so they're always weighing the uh, possibilities of a searcher being injured or, or killed in looking for a person. And so the longer a search goes on, that weighs into the sheriff department's decision on whether to continue the search or not. Okay, yeah, we've, we've come across that in multiple cases where you, you get to this timeline where based on the type of equipment the individual has and their experience in the wilderness, their age, the temperature, the weather, those types of things where you get to a point where it no longer is a search, it's more of a recovery mission. And then it, it, it comes down to, unfortunately, sometimes cost and things, which we always hate talking about on the show, but you can't have, you know, thousands of people 
in an area forever. There has to be a time where it's got to get scaled down and you allow park officials to, you know, hopefully a hiker will come across something or things like that. Um, in your experience, uh, how, how many search and rescue missions have you been a part of roughly, do you think? Oh, yeah, that's a, uh... Yeah, that, that's a hard question. I used to be a ranger with the uh, National Park Service in uh, Utah and, and Death Valley and been on some with the Park Service. And I was with San Bernardino County Cert, uh, Desert Rescue Squad. And then I was on Riverside uh, Mountain Rescue. So if I had a guess, I'm thinking, I don't know, 100, maybe more. Okay, so you, you have a lot of experience doing these things. And I, I know you, in a lot of places, it is a volunteer organization that, that's coordinated by a more professional one. With the types of volunteers that are out there, is the general experience level pretty high? Is there some people who are relatively new? Uh, just to get an idea of when there's people out searching, um, how good of a job are they doing, I guess I'm saying. Like if they're newer, you know, I don't want to talk about if they're capable of doing it, but newer people tend to, they have a learning curve versus people like yourself who've been a ranger and know what they're doing being out there. What is the general rule of thumb as far as how good the people are that are volunteering? Well, and, and we get the, the total spectrum from new people that want to help and join. And of course, there's a, a training period. And so usually we put new people with the more experienced people so they're not out there by themselves. Um, a lot of times we'll put uh, newer people okay, we want you to, to walk this trail if we have no clue where the person is on a mountain. Okay, your job is to walk this trail to see if you encounter the person, call out their name, that type of thing, or maybe stay at a trailhead and, and interview people that hike down the mountain, ask them if they've seen the person and so forth. Uh, more experienced people, uh, we usually send those in to the more difficult areas. Uh, since they have the experience to do that. So it's, it's not that, you know, we just send whoever shows up into an area. Okay. okay. That's kind of what we, we always have assumed, but uh, it's just, it's good hearing it from someone who has the actual knowledge and has done it before. Um, and, uh, go, ahead. Course, go ahead. Of course, it's the, uh, the most experienced people are usually in limited numbers. Because as you, unfortunately, I tell my students, uh, I mentor university aerospace teams, and I tell them, unfortunately, you live your life learning all this stuff, get lots of experience, and then you die. Yeah. And new people have to, uh, you know, start the whole process over. All right, so it's kind of that balance of, you know, bestowing some of the, the SAR knowledge upon the newer people uh, as they're coming on to almost outfit the next generation with, with better equipment, better knowledge, better understanding of how it works. Uh, so we don't just constantly have to restart the whole engine all over again every time. Exactly. And, and when, you, when you join, usually there's a, a, probation period, a probationary period where they kind of evaluate you if you're going to fit in with the search and rescue type missions and also certain training that that you have to have before they let you go out into the field okay that makes sense 
Um, I do have a question about um, sound. Um, I don't know the best way to put it, but when you're out calling someone's name in the woods, what is the, the typical distance? So if you're yelling for Jared and you're listing for replies and things like that, is there a certain type of distance based on like thick brush where maybe if you were calling to him, he wouldn't have been able to hear it, but you're relatively close or in that area, is it relatively noisy? Is it quiet? I'm just trying to think of the odds of if he's injured and trying to call out for help. Um, is it possible if he's under brush that somebody might not have heard him? Uh, I don't know about the brush. I'd say it more depends on the terrain and the number of trees and so forth. Okay. Um, I've been on, in places actually almost on the same mountain where I was up on a ridge and I yelled out and the guy was maybe a couple miles away down below and he called back <laughs> and it was like, oh, this is cool. And so I kept yelling and he was yelling and, and finally, uh, you know, located him. Uh, other times uh, I've been on places in the mountains where I've yelled for the person on the end of my rope and we couldn't hear each other, whether it was because of the wind, the terrain and so forth. So it, it really depends on the location, how far that works. Okay. But it doesn't mean that you don't do it. Sure. Yeah, I can imagine. Cause as I always said, I've, I've done quite a bit of mountain climbing myself. Um, my, my co-host Mike and I, we go out hiking a lot. We do mountain climbing. We're pretty technical as well. So we have experience out in, in the back country and I've had relatively the same experience. It feels like sometimes you can hear people from a long ways away and other times they could be almost around the corner and you don't even hear them coming or know they're there, even if they're having a radio or talking relatively loud. Okay, at this point, I need to leave. I'm sorry about that. Okay. Well, I want to I want to thank you for uh, doing what you do. Uh, anytime, uh, any kind of uh, education that people get about mishaps that happened in the past uh, that can maybe uh, help them avoid those same things in the future is a good thing. Oh, thank you very much for coming on, Rick. It's always great to hear from someone that's in the field. And again, we we try and focus on teaching people the safe ways to go out into the wilderness and using these types of stories as a warning that you can't just go out there. You have to be prepared. You have to stay on trails and things like that. So thank you again for your time. Uh, it was great talking to you. Okay, you're welcome. Have a good day. So that was a really good insighted interview as to someone who is actually on the ground. And I think it was great because it gives us insight as to what the searches go through. So like he said, they're all volunteers, although there are people among the volunteers that are more skilled. There are some that are less skilled that are paired with the more skilled volunteers and it's all ran at a professional level. Um, but from what he was talking about with having to basically helicopter in rappel mm -hmm. down valleys, we had the, the issue with the storm and the water coming down and boulders coming down on them. There's, it, it can be, he was even saying like, there's a lot of earthquakes there. So there's loose rock yeah. and scree basically in those areas. So it can be a really treacherous area if you're not staying on the trail. And to Rick's point, he wasn't staying on the trail. So not only is that a, as you said before the interview, Michael, leave no trace, but even Rick mentioned it can cause erosion and things. Mm -hmm. uh, it's outside of just leave no trace. It can be actually very dangerous to go off trail for those reasons too, because it's the areas of the park that are not maintained. Yeah. And if they're not maintained with the heavy brush um, and you could just hear from Rick's experience of all the issues he's gotten into over the years with heavy brush going off trail, 
uh, doing real backcountry, you know, traversing mountains, not on a trail, how difficult it can be. So now to your point, Mike, you have a 13-year-old kid that might not know any better. Yeah. And he's getting himself into some situations that seasoned veterans are going to have a tr- a hard time navigating through. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, well, so, uh, just to recap, basically, um, Rick's theory is that some kind of accident happened to, um, to him. What? Yeah. Cause I, it's, he talked about, you know, the, the different wildlife. Um, I know you're looking some of it up with the yeah. bears and there's cougars and stuff. And they had that report to, the bear scat that they searched for human remains that turned up nothing. They, they kind of chased that, that lead on the blue canteen and it turned out not to be his, but they, they at least found those, those wrappers and those things that they could narrow down an area at least to search for him. And they just didn't come up with anything. Mm -hmm. And when he's talking about how bad the terrain was, um, it's no wonder. I think that'd be very difficult to find anything in that type of area. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, my three theories that I, I'm throwing out there that I think could be possible. Um, one, I think uh, injury due to, you know, like cutting switchbacks or if he got lost and went off trail, um, getting injured severely enough that he couldn't move and you know, he fell into an area where it was really hard for searchers to find him, I think is highly likely, um, very possible. I think theory number two, like, um, you mentioned this part of California does have, you know, in the San Bernardino national forest, there are black bears and cougars in those mountains. And for a five foot tall child, you know, only 150 pounds, uh, you know, he, might not be a target for a cougar, but you know, black bear definitely would be an issue if he came across, if he startled one or, um, you know, came across and had an interaction with a black bear, uh, that definitely would be an issue. But like, uh, you know, we've said in other episodes, there would be evidence of a bear attack. They would find, you know, not going to get, you know, grisly about it, but they would find, um, you know, either remains in the the bear scat or they would find um, signs of a struggle on the ground. Uh, so if, you know... Yeah, and it seemed, like, it seemed like where his stuff was located is, I mean, let's be real too, bears don't go out of their way to like travel hard areas. They're going to go on trails and paths as well. They're going to go on yeah. game trails, even if it's not human trails. And from what it sounded like, some of the stuff they were finding was on the edge of mountain slides and cliffs that wouldn't make sense for an animal to even go. Yeah. Uh, so my, my, my personal thought is I'm kind of with Rick. Uh, I think it's a, I think I'm kind of with Rick mainly because of his experience. Oh, for sure. Um, so, I mean, that's obviously convincing me more than anything else. If we're going to go down our normal route of saying animal, I don't think so. Um, I think it was just a, you know, a 13 year old kid that just like I probably would have done, not really listened mm-hmm. and was like, you know, what? I'm not going to sit here. I'm going to go back to camp and oh, I don't want to go on the trail. I'm just going to jump down this mountain. You know, he's a, he's a young boy. He's going to yeah do, do what young boys do, do kind of crazy things. But un- unfortunately I think he may have lost his way when he was cutting switchbacks. And it, from what it sounded like when you got off that trail, it just continued to get worse and worse and worse. And if he got stuck in a situation or to your point, if he got injured, mm-hmm. um, 
that just makes it almost impossible uh, for them to find him. Yeah, I think, you know, we've also mentioned that bear attacks in the U.S. are extremely rare. They they don't happen yeah. very often. And the more populated a park, you would you you'd probably think, you know, the more populated a park, the higher chance of getting attacked by a bear. But in reality, the busier parks, the wildlife tends to stay farther away from the trails because especially black bears, they're skittish. They're they're not going to be, you know, hunting humans out on the trail. So um, I, I do think, a, you know, an animal tax probably unlikely. Uh, the third theory I had, which I think is, you know, unlikely based on the location of, you know, items they found would be an abduction. I only say that because he was left alone on a pretty populated trail. Um, it, you know, he could have. No, I agree. I agree with you. I think the photo too is a, a, a dead giveaway. I think that's the thing that confuses me the most is how that got lost. And that's why I also started to think accident, like he slipped and dropped it or something like that. And I just can't, what, what really stinks is that you'd think if that was the case and he dropped it and slid somewhere Yeah. when they found that, cause they searched that area pretty heavily that they would have found something else. And it, it really bugs me that I think he, he must've, if he was okay, even if he slipped, he just kept moving. Mm-hmm. And that was like the worst thing he could have done. And that's what we, we said it in several episodes is you have, as soon as you realize you're lost, you need to like stop unless you can see a trail and get back to the trail and stop there. Because when you move and they search an area and if you're moving around while they're searching and you miss each other, the, it, it could just be the worst, you know, perfect storm ever where I hate to think of the fact that he might've been alive for a while, but it just kept moving around and kept moving around and they kept finding you know, his things and would have found him too if he would have just sat still. Yeah, I think that the the picture in the camera is that's strange to me. I think I think it definitely tells us that he was alive through the evening. And I remember those old cameras. I don't remember if you said it was a like one of those disposables that you had to crank. Or, I yeah, I didn't see, but I'm guessing that's what it was. I mean, yeah, I, so if think about back in the '90s, what I would have given a 13 year old. It right. would have been one of those like click, 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 click. Yeah, flash one of those cameras. disposable like Kodak. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and you know, maybe it was he was trying to get maybe the flash to work to maybe see in the dark or something. Who knows what he was trying to do? And he was he accidentally took a selfie of himself. I can't imagine if you're falling down the side of a mountain that you would be able to take a picture of your face even accidentally, but. I my guess is like like Rick said and like what you have said is he probably started coming down the mountain during the day and he was cutting you know the switchbacks and he got turned around and got lost and because he was a child and didn't really have any training or anything you know what to do he probably walked the wrong direction got even farther off trail and it you know by nightfall you know, those areas where they're, where it's rugged and thick brush, it, you know, it's pretty dangerous to traverse that in the night without any kind of light or headlamp. He probably was, he probably kept walking around through the evening and, you know, yeah, he probably, you know, tripped and, you know, fell down the side of a cliff or who knows what happened. But I, I agree, you know, with Rick's experience that in this case, I think he unfortunately got lost in that he was lost into the evening and that's when something happened. And these places are so vast that, 
Um, and especially if he fell into an area that is extremely remote and rugged that normal hikers don't go through, you know, mm-hmm. they, they may not find his remains or it may be, you know, decades before that happens if they ever do. Well, and uh, the thing that really discourages me against that, even that happening <clears throat> is if he's down in one of those ravines with what he said about that scree and boulders coming down from just like a rainstorm. Yeah. Uh, it just seems like that could uh, really just stop any of that from happening. Yeah, who knows? Uh, since 1991, you know, there could have been earthquakes and, you know, heavy rains that have already washed debris over uh, where his remains are. And if that's the case, he'll they'll never be recovered. But, um, yeah, unfortunately, um, I think this case, unlike some of our other ones, is a little more cut and dry based on especially based on your interview with rick um, I, yeah that's why that's why i like getting the information from the horse's mouth some of the time <laughs> there because it i think it, it takes it takes a lot of the ambiguity away from it because a lot of times we we get all we've said this in several episodes we get all the information we can um from user accounts we try and stray away from those even though uh it, we try and vet those. So I found Rick through a user form where he basically said, Oh, I was on the search and rescue. This is what I think yeah. that could have been anybody saying it, but I reached out and talked to him. I, I looked into his background and he legitimately was in that, in that, in, in that situation. So it's nice to get that firsthand account because I think it helps us with our hypothesis about what actually happened. I yeah. think this one is pretty clear cut that it was just a case of not staying on the trail and not kind of, paying attention to the rules of the park. So, yeah. I mean, that's where leave no trace is a whole other meaning in that regard of there's a reason there's marked trails. And if you stay on them, you can pretty much stay safe. If you start wandering off trails, you go through thick, thick brush and you don't know what you're doing and don't have the right equipment. It could quite literally mean the end of your life. So part of the show is, is, you know, talking about some of these cases and, and the one, especially the supernatural ones kind of theorizing how fun that is, but it's also a safety aspect. And I, I hope people, at least get that message from us too, that the trails are there for a reason. You want to stay on them. Yeah. And we don't want to discourage anyone from going out into the national parks. They're amazing. Oh yeah. It's a great reset. If you're having a, you know, a tough year, you know, whatever's going on in your life, you should get out into the national park system as much as you can, but really be, you know, use common sense. And, you know, if you're unsure about things, go and talk to the Rangers. They love talking to hikers that's what they're there for. They're there to, you know, serve the general public in any questions they have about the park. So utilize that free resource when you're in the park. Some of these rangers have been there for, you know, decades, so they have a lot of lot of knowledge about what to do, what not to do. Um, yeah, and the, most of them are, you know, every ranger I've ever talked to, they're pretty cool. They got a lot of stories, and um, so, you know, always go and, you know, when in doubt, go talk to a ranger. <laughs> Oh yeah, and and millions of people go every year and no one, and don't have issues. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not all doom doom and gloom every time someone goes to the park. So all right, with that, I'd say thanks again for tuning into our show. We appreciate all of you for listening and sharing locations unknown with your friends and family. Be sure to like it and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Uh, I still think we have our LinkedIn page. We that do. never update. So, so we maybe I'll start updating that. I always say that, and then I don't do it. Yeah. Um, if you'd like to support the show, you can visit the Facebook store and pick up some awesome swag. We have a lot of the pink hats still. Yes. Um, we have a lot of both hats, but the pink hats are awesome. 
Uh, otherwise, you can donate to our Patreon account. And with that comes additional swag as well as exclusive Patreon-only episodes. So if you want to hear more of us outside of what you're getting now, sign up at Patreon and you will get the additional episodes. We're going to be recording what? Episode number eight? Uh, Nine? I don't know. Some some number. Yes. <laughs> uh, more than what's on this one. Um, but we just appreciate you all. And also remember, uh, if you have a business and want to advertise or something that's that uh, you want to share, if you want to do a shout out, you can always go out to our website and check out our business advertising page. That's where a lot of our sponsors come from. Uh, and you can offer the listeners of this show a discount code and, and help expand your business. And lastly, just remember when enjoying the beauty of nature, whether backpacking, camping, or taking a walk to always leave no trace. Thanks, and we will see you all next time. <laughs>